0: If people find value in it, then uh, then people will eventually pay it on that. And it's just a matter of if you the practitioner are able to view value to the patient or the patient's parents. Um, and that that, that solely kinda of lies upon kind of you and the staff to go ahead and kind of uh, let them know, especially when it's something that they're never they've never even heard of before. Uh, so mm-hmm. starting something completely new is all up on you to basically Help them understand and see why it's important to, uh, for them to go ahead and spend X amount of money
1: on it. Hello, and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with Dr. Jesus Martinez. We discussed his cold start. We discussed his implementation of new technology. What, how he upgraded some of those technologies into a very small footprint. I can't believe he's doing it all out of that small practice. It was a lot of fun. Please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us Young and emerging presbyopes can be tricky These patients want and need additional help at near but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily We've had this lens now for long enough that we've been able to see how simple transitions can be from an adaptation standpoint from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. The MyDay Multifocal Material is Cooper Vision's softest one-day hydrogel lens and features aquaform technology combining the unique balance of high oxygen permeability with natural wettability in one material. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patient's eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your Cooper Vision representative to get started. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, How do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out icodeeducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out icodeeducation.com. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. It was even better that we got to meet yesterday or last week um, before this because I got a a little bit of a sense of who you are and where you're from. But, you know, um, in general, tell me about your your path. to optometry and kind of your path to private practice. You had made a comment that you were looking at opening another practice. So that's probably the most interesting part uh, about today is, you know, to get to know you a little bit about your, how you started a practice and how you grew it.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I graduated uh, optometry school back in Chicago, 2016. Um, Did a cornea contact lens fellowship in Houston uh, the following year. And then I decided to move back home to California right after that to work for about a year and a half, two years. Uh, I think it was two and a half years out in private practice out there doing mainly um, specialty lenses um, and primary care optometry. Um, But then the the cost of living got to me a little bit too much. Um, And so I had an opportunity to move to Vegas um, where I could basically um, expand my opportunities a little bit more. Uh, so I was working out in an uh, ophthalmology, LASIK office for about two and a half years. And then halfway through or halfway through that, COVID began to hit and then everything shut down. And that's where I had the idea to um, start my private practice. So I think I began the journey probably around September 1st, 2019. Actually, that was, that was when I had the idea of doing it. And then COVID kind of kicked it into overdrive. And then um, eventually I opened up, I believe, May of 2021. Um, and because it was COVID, everyone, in my opinion, I think everyone from California was moving out to Vegas. And that's why <laughs> my, my practice just grew extremely rapidly. Um, so I was uh, going, I went full-time in about six months of my practice. And then it was about a year, about two years in that I decided to finally outfit my second exam lane. And I finally hired my first associate uh, at around the two, two and a half year mark uh, in, yeah. uh, this past August year.
1: That's like uh, an really exponential awesome. trajectory for a private practice. You know that, right?
0: I, I kind of figured that's what it was because uh, I, I talked to some of my consultants. My consultants was eye uh, care advisors, and they kind of helped yep, me they're awesome. start. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, they're phenomenal. I'm, I had a leg up because uh, Dr. Boss happened to be one of my professors at ICO, um, so I knew him a little bit more personally there. Um, but yeah, we just kept talking about how uh, Vegas is an expanding market, and I kind of want to capitalize on that opportunity. That's actually one, the main reason why I decided to, or I'm deciding to open up a second practice is because things have been going well for the first one. I figure might as well replicate it in, uh, one more time, and then I think I'm done after that.
1: You think so? So, okay. How does how does the LASIK Center, the LASIK ophthalmologist how do they view your services? I, this is just—I didn't know this, but it's kind of taking me in a, diff, a little bit different direction. So, how do they view your services related to the total care that they're providing to patients?
0: Um, well, I worked for uh, Lasik Vision Institute, which was bought out by Lasik Plus uh, and TLC, um, mm-hmm. and then they were—they basically view the optometrist as. Uh, as a necessity for the ophthalmologist because it's extremely high volume surgery. I mean, we're talking about, uh, 25 patients, uh, per surgery day, sometimes two surgery, uh, two surgeries a week, uh, two surgery days a week. So right. you're getting extremely high volume. Um, especially for us being the only, uh, LASIK vision Institute in Nevada, uh, I think in Nevada actually. Um, and so what that would do is basically you need an optometrist to handle all that high volume. Uh, otherwise the surgeons, I'm not going to have any time off to do anything else, but see patients. Um, and I believe they hire their surgeons locally. Um, I could be completely wrong on that one, but they hired their soldier, their surgeons locally, at least the ones that I was working with. And the surgeons themselves also had their own, uh, like ophthalmology, general ophthalmology practices, uh, within the city as well too.
1: Right. Well, so then, um, so, uh they weren't having you do specialty contact lenses or irregular corneas that that was that was not applicable to that position that you took other than your expertise in cornea in general
0: exactly yeah um i think the they had me utilize my cornea abilities because of all the uh, because sometimes there are complications that arise and i know which ones are the ones that the surgeons could handle the ones that i could handle that was with still within the scope of practice um, and then some of the surgeons basically trusted me to kind of just handle things that, um, that, you know, uh, they might've been a little bit more at ease with, um, with just them doing it or a very, very skilled optometrist to go and do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, um, oh, yeah. so that, what do you think, is it just the case? You know, I talked to Eric, Eric and Charlotte Ablett and they had a really, uh, steep trajectory as well. And. Uh, their answer to it was mainly they picked the right spot. I believe they used eye care advisors also. Um, but, but is that, that can't be it. Like there's something when we met before, there's something inherently special about you, whether it's your knowledge, your training, your approach to practice, same thing with Charlotte and Eric, um, that helps out. But you know, their, their response is a large part was like, they picked the right spot. Is that, is that mainly the magic?
0: Uh, I mean, I think that's a huge part of it, just because of the fact that like, if you're familiar with the Vegas area in general, so I'm in uh, an area called like West Henderson. So it's uh, an up and coming new community. And right behind us is um, a, a brand new community that's called Inspirata. Off to the west of it is uh, Southern Highlands, which is an extremely affluent area where the Raiders players live, the uh, Golden Knights players live. So it's just a lot of – it's all about finding where the location is. And it, I think it helps out that the only other optometrist around me is going to be a Costco, which is in my shopping center outside of that. Mm-hmm. I'm about three miles yeah. away from the nearest uh, OD, uh, at least in an OD private practice. Um, and so there's just – there's not there aren't very many people around here, and there's not a lot of docs that are willing to open up another practice out here either. So it's just it was perfect location, um, perfect timing. Because I said I, I think a big factor was that I just kept getting an influx of new patients like from the start, uh, and I'm talking you know full schedule pretty much from about one month in. Um, I, I have a feeling that has a lot more to do with the amount of people moving into Vegas during the pandemic um with the low interest rates and everyone buying houses around left and right um so i think that helped out quite a bit uh and then the part that's been helping me expand though that i think this is the part that that is might be a little different is the specialty lens training that i have um i'm about 20 25 percent specialty lenses um and that's that's a huge huge uh, contributor to profit um and so i've been able to utilize those profits I get my second exam lane, expand my practice. I eventually bought an IPL, which has been slow to take off, but it's finally starting to pick up some steam. Um, So at this point, it's it's just compounding more and more and more. And I think, you know, the primary care optometry is the backbone. That's what's, you know, keeping the, the lights on. But what's progressing me is the specialty lenses and the amount of people that are seeking eye care in this area.
1: I mean, I think that's the most... You know the the thing that I talk about a lot is is yes, the backbone has to be primary eye care. I believe it is I mean, I've talked to some people on this that that say that they they've view the profession as a lot of different silos in fact, that was it was interesting I was having conversation with a doc at academy uh, not on the podcast, although I think is I'd like to talk to him. he's got a lot of strong opinions. And I disagree with most of them, but, but that doesn't mean I'm right or he's right, you know, or, or I'm not right and he's wrong. It's just, it's a totally different approach. And his approach is no, optometrists should just have a silo. You know, I should just do cornea. I should just do kind of I just do dry eye or I should just do glaucoma. I should just do macular degeneration, whatever it is, or maybe, you know, retina, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so my, my approach to it is there's. That's a very hard challenge. That's a hard nut to crack. And there's a whole slew of reasons. One is that it's just not that convenient for a patient to be transitioned from, from doctor to doctor to doctor outside of one practice versus another practice. That's mm-hmm. one. The second is it's not, they all go in hand in hand. Just like we had discussed this last week, there's really no silos in primary care optometry, if you if you manage a lot of scleral lenses, and that was my, my first, what I would call pillar in our practice, was scleral lenses and specialty contact lenses. And, but if you do enough of that, you see, well, I can't ignore the ocular surface if I'm doing that. And then if I see, well, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of patients with orthokeratology as well. And I mean, I'm, I'm a lot older than you are. I, I graduated in 20, 2008. And so myopia management was not a thing. I mean, it was a thing, but it was a thing that like people were doing sort of at the, the fringes. And so when we were using orthokeratology, we had just started seeing in the early, not like in the early tens, right? 2010, 2011, 2012. Some of these studies coming out showing us like, yeah, these are big studies and this isn't just fringe anymore. It wasn't fringe of like our goal was let's correct their, their nearsight, excuse me their nearsightedness so they don't have to have glasses or contacts during the day. And oh, by the way, if what they're saying is true based on some of these case reports, then, then we get the benefit of slowing down nearsightedness. But it wasn't until those early tens that we started seeing some of that data come out where we could really, um, support it with, with, uh, randomized or at least some controlled trials. Um, and so my point in saying that is that, um, that it begets now you're, you that begets myopia management and then mm-hmm. myopia management begets, well, I, I can't, I have to pay attention to their optic nerves as they get older. And so I, I still think I'll, I'm going to have him on to try to discuss this a little bit more for, further from his perspective. And I'm not trying to convince him he's wrong. I just want to, I, I just can't get out of that mindset of like, if you really want to do this well, outside of a really large group practice, um, it's very hard to silo. I care. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I would pretty much agree with you on that one. Um, like, I'll be the first to admit that my I'm not the most comfortable with uh, infant Pete's. Um, but I've started because of the fact that exactly what you were saying you go from specialty lenses, keratoconus to ortho K. Ortho K is pretty much means you're going to become uh, not necessarily a peeps doctor, but you're going to see a lot more kids. Um, and so I, you know, i took them upon them to go to academy multiple times to basically learn as much as I could about BV, uh, functional vision, pediatrics. Um, and I actually brought on my, uh, associate and she's a, a vision therapy peds doctor. Um, we haven't associated any, uh, um, we haven't used her vision therapy whatsoever in the practice because she does that at another practice, but I'd like, you know, I brought her in to go ahead and number one, help, uh, grow the practice, but number two, Kind of help uh, lead more of the Peds aspect into myopia management um, from her perspective as well, too. Um, you know, and that eventually leads to getting better at the retina on that, and just like you were saying, because you'll be seeing more retinal issues down the line. So exactly like you're saying, you're it's it's best to be um, I don't want to say a jack of all trades, um, but you're you need to be a jack of all trades in order to basically become a master at some.
1: Saying saying you know, I think the jack of all trades generally kind of misrepresents what what I think you and I are talking about. I think that's the easy term, but it but it sort of trivializes like, well, you can't be a jack of all trades and be a master of of you know of of these things. But I, I actually disagree. I think the the vast majority of what we would deal with, like 90% of what we do in, in primary care optometry, is knowable. It's knowable based on evidence. It's knowable based on what we what we ought to be doing for patients with different um, different clinical situations, it's largely knowable. Then what you can't know that you can gain from your clinical experience can be gained from seeing patients constantly, you know, continually seeing patients. One way reason I have, I still see patients three days a week. It's, it's because I, I, I've thought many times of going down to one, one day a week and even stop not seeing patients. Uh, and, and one, I like it a lot. And two, it, I I'm always, I'm not, I'm less cha- I'm always challenged at, at something different. Maybe maybe less now so than fifteen years ago. But but I'm always thinking about how do we how do we incorporate this into the practice. And I say that to say that those things are knowable. And with clinical like with clinical curiosity and moving toward a way that you can kind of push the envelope. What I mean by that is not like you're doing things that are dangerous, but you're just saying like, I wonder about this. And this makes some sense. And I'm, I'm, I understand the risks that are involved here. And this is how we get better. Right. Like, I think as long as you're doing those things, this idea that, that, you know, well, let's just have the cornea guy look at it, or let's just have the retina guy look at it. Most of that stuff is unnecessary in many cases, and it's knowable. It's knowable what we should do with, with different things. And when we're sending them to those uh, specialists, it's, it's the rare cases, right? It's the, it's the things that you're just not going to see that often in your practice. Mm -hmm. Um, But you are able to identify because you know, the, the 90% or the 95% of what you're seeing in your practice, or you're sending them because you know, this patient needs treatment that is beyond the scope of your practice. And so when you, when you look at it that way, it's you can do really a lot of things at a very, very high level, uh, in my opinion, by looking at that. And I don't think that's an arrogant statement And it's not, I mean, certainly there are people that are probably better than any, than me at any one of those things that we do in our practice, any one of them probably. But I think when it comes down to it, there's, there's almost nobody that does all of those things as well as we do. Um, so I don't know that that's probably a, a brash statement that makes me look bad but i think that's when i talk to really good independent practitioners that have developed really uh successful practices that's how they look at themselves in a lot of ways
0: yeah i would agree with that too i mean it's a constant learning fest. You know, you're just uh, always trying to improve, trying to be better. Uh, I mean, I, I know for a fact that my, certain aspects of optometry, I go to academy, go to these online lectures to basically learn as much as I can. But you're right. The experience when you actually sit in a chair, you, you know, you, you sometimes you freak out a little bit. And you're like, all right, uh, do I know this? Do I not? Let me go in the back, take a quick look, see if I can find something in Will's eye manual. Um, and if, if I'm just uncomfortable with it, I send it to the ophthalmologist, follow up with the ophthalmologist, let, they let me know what's going on so I can figure out what, uh, what it is next time. Um, so it's just that constant evolution to further better yourself, uh, especially in private practice, because, um, I mean, we're doing this for the, for the benefit of the patients, but in reality, this is also our business, you know, uh, every patient you send to uh, a specialist that's not in your own practice is revenue that can be taken away from your own practice as well, too.
1: Well, it's also, I mean, to, to the point of of, um, to the point of just the best patient care. It, mm-hmm. it it is the case that if you can do it and you can and you can do it well for the patient, then oftentimes you know that that um, well the the reality is the patient is many times just wanting to know your opinion. Like I've got a patient right now who, um, well. The you've, you've built a, such an established relationship with the family that when they do need to be sent to the specialist, you're the ones they're asking questions to. You know they they might nice. get five minutes with that specialist, but then you're getting texts or they're getting a phone call, and you're and and you're trying to kind of help them sort through, you know what the information was, and you're re- interpreting letters, and that that's really important. And um, it it's your point. When you do have to let that go, if you can do the more things you can help that patient with in your practice, the more you'll identify things early. And then you'll build the relationship so that when you do have to p- put that patient with somebody else, then they're going to still re- they're still going to come back to you because you're the the hub of that uh, of that care related to their eyes. And I also think, Jesus, I also think that. um that in many places, optometry is becoming like it shifted from when people think about their internal medicine physician or their family medicine physician. That doctor used to be the hub of all of their care, and where they would always look to for advice related to all things. But as many of those practices have been purchased, and many of those uh, doctors now just don't—they work for a, a big corporation, and patients don't have access to them. In a lot of ways, you'll find. I find a lot of my patients that want my opinion about, uh, about, well, what, you know, what knee surgeon should they use? Or what, you know, um, what primary care doctor do they use? Their other doctor retired and they don't have, they don't know anybody, you know, or what do I think about, um, you know, that we want to talk about their diabetes because the primary care doctor didn't talk to them about it hardly at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm finding more of that. And, and part of that I think does come with being an independent doctor. I think the other part of it comes with being a part of the community, for a long enough period of time. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's definitely it, and that's uh, it's kind of what we're, we're all trying to do. Is uh, I, I mean, I feel like you, your your practice has been well established. Correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've been around yeah. for thirty five years now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So I think that's with with Vegas the way it is. Everyone's constantly asking me, um, you know, who's a good primary, who's a good, uh, who's a good rheumatologist, who's a good uh, endocrinologist. Um, and that's what I'm actually waiting for is, um, more, uh, physicians, more, uh, MDs to come actually into, into Vegas so I can make those referrals. Cause right now everyone's completely swamped. And I'd love to be in that position where, I mean, you're, you know, your practice, you're well-established in the community, you know, everyone around you, um, with Vegas being how, how it is and, and growing, that's kind of where we want to be in the, in the community, just growing along with it and being that that primary source for um, uh, for patients and uh, information for them.
1: When you think about your myopia management, and well, actually, I want to take a little bit of a step back and mm-hmm. ask about your, because you said you're now kind of doing more of that. Your specialty lenses is a big thing, but when you're with eye care advisors, they are very rigorous on what you should spend money on and what you shouldn't spend money on right away. So mm-hmm. tell me about um, when you decided, well, first, like what was your wheelhouse uh, equipment that you purchased right away. First things you purchased when you started the practice.
0: First thing purchased was um, uh, Topcon automated phoropter. basically everything that links up. So uh, phoropter, your auto keratometer, auto refractor, uh, auto lensometer, everything links to make it as easy and efficient as possible. Yep. Um, I purchased the CA 800, which is the Topcon topographer, and, um, worked out perfectly to start for specialty lenses. And then, uh, you know, figuring out how to be a new practice, uh, about six, seven months in, I realized that it had my biography on there. And then that's when I started picking up the dry eye to go with it. <laughs> um, but to the other purchases that I made was the, my in-office edger um, to start. And then I was, I ended up leasing um, uh, Optimap uh, California, uh, which I'm still not, which I still have right now. Yeah. And yeah. those, I think the, the OptiMap and the edger are basically the highest ROI that I can think of, um, that, that's an immediate return on investment. Um, but I believe I didn't like practicing without an OCT. So I was able to find a 2012, uh, OptiView OCT <laughs> on its last legs for about five grand, um, picked that up and you know it it I I believe it's finally paid itself off now after about two and a half years but to start I was using it sparingly or on patients where I didn't know what was going on trying to figure out how to even bill with it Um, and then uh, over time I started becoming more and more comfortable using it and figuring out how to uh, how to bill for it uh, appropriately how to how to get everything all squared away and that's that's allowed me to actually go ahead and start uh, focusing on uh, the glaucoma aspect of my practice as well too. Um, and at this point, the last piece of equipment that I recently bought, uh, well, um, well actually the IPL I bought, um, about last year, and that's, I probably should have waited about another year to go and pick that one up, but now about a year in with it, I'm starting to actually see some more results and, uh, get that program picked up a little bit more. Um, so it's becoming a lot more profitable at this point. Um, that one, I probably sh- wish I would have waited until about year three though. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the last piece of equipment that I recently bought was uh, the Maya um, that does axial length because I'm doing quite a bit of uh, myopia management and I wasn't I didn't have an axial length measurement to begin with. So it was kind of um, not the uh, not the standard of care that I would like to go ahead and do. Um, so now that I've finally gotten uh, an axial length measurement device, um, um, I feel like I'm more appropriately treating myopia management, or more appropriately doing myopia management,
1: it's interesting. Well, so I, I just heard this week. I think it was maybe even yesterday that the Maya uh, received its approval for my biography on it. So I think hmm. that software now, if if that was one thing that you had before that you didn't that you had on your other top kind device, I think that now is available. Whether I think there's a lot of people that well, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but how they're going to upload or turn it on or whatever. But um, I just got that word yesterday, which is kind of cool. Does, that probably means that, did you sell your other topographer, my biographer? Yep, to? Yeah. Or you going to? Yeah. I just sold
0: it. I just sold it to um, one of my friends down the street. She is, op- uh, she just opened up for practice about a year ago and wants to get into uh, more dry eye as well too. And the Maya was the easy upgrade for me and I wanted it. She wanted to get into this. So it brought the cost out of the Maya a lot more for me. Um, Yeah. And then uh, I was just talking, I actually just got it installed, I believe uh, on Friday. And I was talking to the top down people on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, They said cross fingers uh, that hopefully within the next update, they'll basically go ahead and get an, uh, get the my biography on there. Um, And then I'm back up to a hundred percent.
1: Nice. Yeah. I mean, the the thing for me and I, I think you and I were talking about this, but we're building a new, a new, Uh, Building, and Mm -hmm. you know, I I, it's it's this idea of like you don't want bogged down points, you know, like where where your patient flow is going to be, uh, where you have the ability to physically take care of that patient with your the bodies in the in the exam space and with your technicians in the in the practice and other staff in the practice, but then you get pinch points that occur in just your physical space. Mm-hmm. And so there's part of me that's looking at this new space of you know having lots of separate little partitions in the in the practice for pre testing so that can be malleable where i because I have a new device that is you know has a footprint of two by two i can I can squeeze that room a little bit smaller and move a device that's a four by four into a bigger you know, a bigger space. Uh, But then I I think like, well, at some point we might get to the place where everything or almost everything is a headset where patients just put a different headset on in different places. I've seen technology where it's very impressive. It's, I mean, uh, it it will change the game. I think that it has a footprint, the size of about of a uh, old Optos, like the P200 Mm -hmm. that can capture like, any pretest, any any single pretest piece of data you could want, uh, including OCT, all in one device. Now the, the problem with that, of course, is that if that happens, it's uh, if one piece of that breaks, now the whole the whole instrument becomes unusable, or maybe just that piece becomes unusable. But now it's like, okay, I've lost this ability to move people through. Uh, in any case, those are my thoughts. What what kind of things do you think about now in your space when you're adding new technology? How much does that impact you uh, just in general?
0: Gosh, I wish I could give you a tour of this place because uh, it is small. Um, so we have uh, 1,126 square feet and we are like packed to the brim at this point. So uh, footprint is massively important for me um, that's why i needed multiple i need devices that can do multiple things um i realized i did get a a, a vr headset as well too for virtual or for visual field um, but when we're expanding equipment it basically it's like well how much space do we have to even fit things because then we're gonna have to take something else away or move something to a different location where it may not fit pro- uh, appropriately um, and at this point I'm at the point, uh, this is where I was having a conversation with Dr. Boss, um, uh, about whether or not I should expand to, uh, purchase a building or, uh, expand my practice and then wait to purchase a building 10, 15 years down the line while this guy grows. Um, what did he say? He actually said, uh, go to, um, get a second location.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. He said, and, exp- go ahead. expand, expand because Vegas is expanding too quickly. Um, so capitalize on that and then you can always buy another building 15 years down the line whenever you're ready.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it might not be 15 years for you if, if the second practice grows as rapidly as your first practice has grown, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot more rapid than that. The, so what, how has your patients responded with a new associate? Have you, did you, were you able to incorporate a new associate quickly enough to not have a lot of people bound to you specifically?
0: uh yeah i mean um right now any new patient uh it's it's pretty much you know what so my associate only works wednesdays and every other saturday um uh and a lot of it was just to take a lot of the burden and the stress off of me because i've been working five six days a week for the last five years so i was starting to get a little tired um but the any new patient we just basically ask them what day they want to come on in if they want if they want a wednesday we meant we just let them know that they're gonna be seeing my associate Uh, If it's a previous patient, previous patients either they want to be seen quickly or they, if they need to see me, then it's going to be at least about a week and a half, two weeks out sometimes. Um, But at this point, it's, we wanted to open up that that Wednesday, uh, that extra day to basically uh, give patients more opportunity to go ahead and see her. Uh, And I mean, it's been, they've been taking it really well because I, I believe I went on vacation about uh, back in June. And I had a, a couple fill-in docs kind of uh, roll through just to basically see uh, to fill in for me while I was on that like two three week vacation. Mm-hmm. but I asked the staff which um, which docs they felt most comfortable working with, and which uh, docs uh, the patients responded well with, and then most importantly, which one was kind of similar in my style of um, explaining things, not going too quickly, making sure that the patients felt that there was value to uh, to their examination. And then the staff actually helped me decide, um, which associate, um, uh, which one I would hire. Um, mm-hmm. so it's been, it's been melding really well with our practice here. Um, and I'm hoping that, um, that when I open up the second practice, we can figure out what I, how I'm going to do that, uh, have an associate for both the, my current practice and my new practice.
1: Well, who's, so then you're going to staff both of them, which is going to be, Right, your new practice and your existing practice, or how are you yeah. how are you planning on doing that?
0: So I'm planning on doing uh, three and three. So work here three days a week, work there three days a week, um, and then the the associate would basically work three days a week here, and then while I while that second practice slowly builds up, and then hopefully it builds up just as quickly as the first one does, so that I can. Um, make sense of hiring an associate maybe a year, year and a half down the line to basically get it to be full-time, running full-time, just like this one.
1: My patients with macular degeneration want clear and succinct recommendations from me related to products and solutions that can benefit their long-term ocular health and vision. To do this for my patients, I need to be confident that what I'm recommending will have a benefit to them. And that's why my supplement of choice is MacuHealth. MacuHealth is specifically formulated and clinically proven to rebuild and maximize macular pigment over a lifetime. This results in enhanced visual performance and aids in the treatment and prevention of age related macular degeneration. I've discussed carotenoid absorption on this podcast with Dr. Nolans and Stringham, and MacuHealth uses a patented process called micromicelle technology. And this technology is clinically proven to increase carotenoid concentrations at the target tissue and deliver the highest level of bioavailability studied to date. MacuHealth has been great for my patients. We really feel like we have the ability to help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. If you're not utilizing MacuHealth for your patients, Check it out for yourself by contacting your Mackey Health representative. Like this one. How did you view um, your specialty? You know, a lot of a lot of the holdups with people incorporating new things into their practice, specifically related to specialty contact lenses and myopia management. Let's talk about myopia management for a second. How did you, you don't have to talk specifically about prices, but was there a mechanism that you put in place to say, well, this is what how I'm going to charge patients. These are the fees that we're going to set. Was there... Was there a process to that, or did you just sort of pluck something out of the air?
0: Mm, I mean, I used my um, my my fellowship training because uh, University of Houston had a myopia management um, program, and I based a lot of the pricing, like kind of like baseline pricing of what it would be, uh, kind of based off that. And then, um, you know, going to Vision by Design, asking questions about, you know, Uh, what would be appropriate, you know, because there's all these models about how much, uh, you know, how much your chair time costs, things along those lines. But I wanted to make it reasonable to start, but not unreasonable um, because I'm still building. Mm -hmm. Um, What I ended up doing to build it quickly was offering uh, a referral program. So my, um, say you were to do, your kid were to go ahead and do uh, myopia management. If you were to refer another family, uh, another family member, or that's not your immediate family, or uh, a friend, and then they happen to do it, then you, your child gets $200 off their, um, their next um, or X amount off for uh, next year on that end. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's basically how I built up my my program. It's a little bit, um, it's just been slowly building up that way. But it's more of word of mouth referrals, things along those lines.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the integration of those types of things into a practice, I think generally we, we overthink them for too long. I mean, I think, I think sometimes it's you can make a wrong decision and then you can always fix it. Like you're not married to it. I think sometimes we think, well, if I charge this now and I'm not making enough money or, I'm, or nobody's doing it because it's this expensive – then I can't change it. I think we're a lot of times resistant to that and that holds us back from doing anything. It gives us some paralysis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, hear, I'll hear people talk about analysis paralysis, but I think it's it's like just find a way that you think works and let's try that way. And you can always increase or reduce. And if somebody asks, well, why is this, why is this more expensive? Most people won't, but, but if they did, you I mean just be honest with them. Like we couldn't offer this service at like if. We could offer this service in a way that could keep the doors open and our patients needed the service right like mm-hmm. that's acceptable that's a that's the way that the that, that a business works if, if you make a decision that where the where the number doesn't match that's that's a doable thing and so yeah. then yeah go ahead well, i was gonna say if people find value in
0: it then uh then people will eventually pay it on that and it's just a matter of if you the practitioner are able to view value to the patient or the patient's parents. Um, and that, that, that solely kind of lies upon kind of you and the staff to go ahead and kind of uh, let them know, especially when it's something that they're never, they've never even heard of before. Uh, so mm-hmm. starting something completely new is all up on you to basically help them understand and see why it's important to, uh, for them to go ahead and spend X amount of money on it. Uh, I was just joking around with one of my friends yesterday. Um, I needed to get an outlet installed for uh, a deep freezer in the house and the electrician came over and charged me five hundred bucks for it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I was like, "Man, I have patients that that complain about you know, x amount. You know, my my price is being like a, a fifth or a fourth or less than that. Uh, you, yeah. know, or a ten dollar yeah. copayment. <laughs>
1: uh, know, it I, is. Really, it's staggering when whatever. you start seeing, and they don't have to. They don't have to. Uh, you know, accept what a another third party is willing to pay them for those services. They get to charge you what they're worth. And if you don't think it's worth that, then you don't pay it and they don't have to do the service. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot. There's a couple of things I've learned from even just like my cousin, who is uh, a plumber. He's got a great plumbing business. And um, he, like, we get the only discount we get. He's my cousin. He's like, we grew up like best friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And we get a 5% recurring customer um, like discount. No, not family discount. Not friends and family discount. Just five percent family discount. We had two toilets installed, two new toilets installed in our house, Mm -hmm. and it was like sixteen hundred bucks. You know, no questions. The guy came in and did it. And again, like I don't want to install a toilet. I I I want them. They got nice toilets. They they install them. I don't have to hassle with it, right? Mm -hmm. But but like then you start thinking about that. You're like, wow, wow. Why do I give such a discount to my family members? Like. I'm taking care of them. And I I might even uh, question whether or not I'm taking care of them really as well as I ought to be because I'm sort of like, well, it's just, I'm giving this care away and they don't really care. And, you know, so like, I I don't think that, but, but you can kind of slip into those like, well, they just, they're coming here because they get it for free. Um, and I am providing a value. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I, I still, we still give discounts, um, because we have for years and years to all my family members, but, uh, thanks to my cousin now i'm I'm seriously considering lowering them significantly um, so I don't know I, I think you're right though and then you see, you look around and you're like well, I go get a haircut and you start thinking about it's like a man's haircut my you know my haircut's nothing special I mean my my lady's great I'm not saying anything bad about her she's nice I like her a lot i've been you know I've been going to her for fifteen years and um but like her she charges me for a haircut as much as what uh many optometrists accept from managed vision care plans in my community like i don't expect accept those plans but i know what they what they're getting paid and i know she's charging as much or more than that for a man's haircut that takes her you know 15 minutes to do Mm -hmm. so i think there's a lot to be said about valuing your services but we're not good at that
0: Mm -hmm. no 100 uh and i think um, after I talked to some of my friends, you know, like I said, they're electricians, plumbers, uh, guys I grew up with. Uh, they, they would come in and they were like, no, no, no we're going to pay you. And I'm like, yeah, I, I've always been, you know, keeping, not giving away services for free, but uh, you know, friends and family to basically go ahead and help model as much as I could. But I mean, they, they value their own profession to the point where they're not going to give things away for the uh, for free. Uh, and I feel like we should be doing that as well too. Um, and that, to go with the home myopia management, I value, um, what I'm providing. I'm fighting. I value the service that I'm providing for the patients. And if they see it, then they're going to pay it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If they see the value in it for sure. So, all right. Um, last question, Mm -hmm. if I'm going to talk to you in five years, what, uh, I I think I know where you want to go, but you said you only want to open two practices. Mm -hmm. Well, why just two and, um, you know, in five years, what's the thing you are gonna want to do that keeps the fire inside of you moving forward? Um
0: I'd probably say that the doing two is probably where I where I wanna be right now. We'll see where I end up in five years. Um but the the high level of stress of doing a cold start, um, that one took a toll on uh Told me kind of like mentally financially um and, and physically uh so now that i'm finally like two three years in um I'm, I'm content i'm happy i'm starting to reap the benefits of it all to redo that one more time i think i can do that but doing a cold start especially by myself for a third one i think that would probably that'd be a little too much for me if i'm going to do a third one it'd probably be with a partner uh someone to take some of the burden off on that one Um, so that's, that's probably the main reason why I wouldn't do a third one, especially just on my own. Um, and I think that having two and then expanding those two after you know, cause I'm right now I'm 33 turning 34 uh, next month. Um, the goal is to eventually expand these, the, the two practices that I will have, uh, into buildings that I purchased and expansions to basically have, you know, um, three, you know, two, maybe three doctors working for me. I'm going to keep it moderate size and then basically grow those practices to as much as I possibly can. Hopefully by the time I'm 55, I can start to step back a little bit and start enjoying um, more more the the, the fun times because I just recently started taking vacations again after about, you know, three, four, five years now. Uh, and it's been fun and I'm uh, I'm starting to really enjoy being an owner, being a boss and then saying, Hey, you know what? I don't want to see patients, you know, for a week or two, let me go. And we can afford to go ahead and do that. So let me go ahead and take my, my time off this year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm about 10 years older than you, not quite 10 years older than you. And I would say that, that has been, that was my perspective for a long time too. You know, I want to be able to retire by 55 and COVID for me, I think I've said this on the podcast, but COVID for me clarified some things. I got to enjoy what we're doing a little bit more right now. And so the more, I'm not saying like blow all your money all the time on vacations right now. I'm just saying like 55 is a long way for you, brother. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it sounds like you're starting to dabble into taking some vacations and taking some other time off. That's awesome. Keep that up. But also just remember that that like your normal time doesn't have to like your normal reprieve from your clinic and your practice doesn't always have to be um, like a grandiose vacation where it's like I'm going to go six months hard and then we're going to take off three or four weeks. I'm not saying that's wrong. You should do that mm-hmm. if that's the thing you like to do. But make sure that every day you're doing something that challenges you in a way you want to be challenged, so that you don't get into a grind. Uh, I don't I don't anticipate that from you, and I don't know you well enough to know whether or not you're doing that or not doing that. But enjoy what you got now, and um, and uh, and enjoy it on a daily basis if you can. You know, and maybe it is just seeing patience and and building the practice. Uh, I enjoy that a lot as well. But find something that, you know, on a regular basis, you can. You're just like, yeah, all right, I get to do that tomorrow instead of being like, oh, six months. I just came back from. So anyway, that's some encouragement. I think that's awesome that you've got those those plans. I think that's a really great plan. Um, but remember, um, life is a process, so enjoy the process and enjoy when you know. Just know you're going to be stressed out with this next practice, like you're talking about. But find some joy in it. Cause it'll, you'll, you'll be better for it. Oh yeah.
0: Well, We'll see you in about five, 10 years huh? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I hope to see you sooner than that. So listen, I I will be respectful of your time. Everybody, uh, if if, Jesus, if, if people wanted to reach out to you, do you have a place that they can go? Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to me, uh, and you can either go ahead and email me, uh, jmartinezod at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise you can, uh, hit me up on Instagram, uh, w y or w h y i t s j e s u s um i'm pretty much on those two things uh, on a daily basis
1: awesome awesome thanks for doing this man i appreciate it yeah absolutely